Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Renowned Podcast. This is episode 11, and we are your hosts and co-creators, Mark Schultz. And Allison Hager. Renowned is a podcast for the curious. We dust off the commonplace to look for new relevance as we challenge ourselves to think critically about the objects that surround us. How do they echo humanity's past, reflect the present, or even foreshadow the future? Allison, do you want to remind us what our magical noun of the week is? I sure do. Our magical noun this week is slab. S-L-A-B. I love slab. saying it. Slab. slab. I know. I think that was your reaction last week when we got it. Slab. What? That was really funny. I loved it. Um, and I think, so I, I was feeling like bold and saucy last week, I guess. And I rated it <laughs> at a 7.5. And you were just not feeling it at all and rated it at a three. So it'll be fun to see where we went with it and where That's our ratings right. end I forgot. Up. Yeah, I forgot. I, I remember being like, this feels like highway or construction. Meh. And then I was, I don't know, I was over it. But I, I can already tell I'm a, a little bit better about it. But anyway, hmm. uh, excellent, excellent. So, Spoiler alert. I know. I think. So shall, we I mean, roll, shall we roll our die? Yes, of course, of course. <laughs> One. Three. I think I had three last week too. Well, you'll be happy to hear that I uh, I believe mine is is pretty uh is pretty condensed this week. Um, but we'll do our quick hits each first and get a little taste of what we might be talking. My quick hit is not so condensed, so I will be talking rather rapidly. <laughs> You're gonna laugh. So, mine is yes. Okay, go ahead. Oh gosh, I oh, hope oh, yours sorry. is just yes. one word. I hope I hope yours is you just going slab. Okay. Slab. So. Uh, 15 seconds on the clock and go. One definition for a slab is a flat rectangular architectural element that is usually formed of a single piece of mass, such as a foundation slab. And we'll be talking about how some slabs have served their purpose repeatedly over time. Done. <laughs> Done. Uh, oh. Oh, did you hear that? That was a loud I did. ringer. Loud ringer, everybody. But I got it done. I got it you done sure before did. I got buzzed out. You had a second left. Excellent. Uh -huh. Okay, Mark, 15 seconds on the clock for you and go. Slab is the slap at the foot by the boom. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I love that your face right now is like, Mark's lost his mind. Mark has lost his mind. <laughs> But that's it. And uh, you'll, Do I you'll... need to call somebody for you? Or are you having a stroke? What's happening? <laughs> uh, it will all make sense, I promise. I'm so excited. I'm glad mine is quite short this week because I really can't wait to dive into yours. Okay, okay, okay. So... Uh, here we go. I'm just going to get through mine because damn, do I want to hear what Mark is talking about. So we are going to dig down into the foundations now, down Excellent. our rabbit hole. So as you probably uh, have been able to tell, I, I love words that sound like what they are. And I think slab fits that description. It it's not quite an onomatopoeia, right? Like, like splat or something, but it's a really utilitarian and basic word. And it's a really utilitarian and basic thing. It's fundamental. Sorry, I'm it's smiling and laughing only because I imagine 
you were racing to say onomatopoeia before you thought I was probably going to say it because we're both those nerds. I was like, I was about to yell it out. Just like I knew li- you were literally into the air. Uh, I yay. love that you called yourself out because I actually sped up there so you wouldn't say it. That is hilarious. Okay, folks, a little insight. Into uh, yeah, sorry, our, our friendship. Uh, good times. Uh, okay, please like, continue. He's not going to beat me to that because this is part of my spiel. Okay. So, lay it out. Lay it out on the slab. Slab. I love Come it. On. So... In areas where homes and buildings are built without basements, a concrete slab is poured and the structure is built atop that. And often when buildings become derelict, decay, fall down, are demolished, the concrete slab will remain. It will be the only kind of footprint left of what used to be built there. And such was the case at a place called Camp Dunlap, which was a US Marine base in the Sonoran Desert in California. It was established in 1942, just after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and it was used for artillery and anti-aircraft training, as well as used as a bombing run. In fact, the crew of the Enola Gay trained there. Um, The camp was closed after World War II. It was officially finally closed in 1956. The buildings were demolished. The utilities were disconnected, but the slabs, the concrete slabs remained. By the early 60s, ownership was transferred transferred to the state of California, and the state of California still owns this area as public land. But when the Marines moved out, the squatters moved in. So artists, hippies, migrants, anarchists, the homeless, they now make up this community, which still exists, built on former Camp Dunlop, and it's known as Slab City, or familiarly by locals, the Slabs. And it's thus known, because as I mentioned, the Slabs remained the concrete slabs that the uh, marine base buildings were built on um they're still there after the demolition and they were then and now used as the new foundations for the homes and the rvs and the lean-tos of this you know sort of hodgepodge community and there's a large range of housing styles in slab city from fancy campers to palm fronds and branches branches fashioned into lean-tos um Residents call Slab City the last free place in America. And they call it this because there is no government. It's an unincorporated town on public land. There's no police force, no services, no utilities, no sewer, no taxation, no administration. There's nothing. Wait, wait, wait. wait. They're in a state. There's no local government. Uh, well, correct. There's okay. that is a very good point. You know what is also funny? I knew on this. I'm point not correcting you, of course. I'm in. correcting them because no, no, they're no, probably no. like all out there, like we're out in the freaking frontier. I'm like, you're in the country, guys. But when what's state. funny is when I was writing that, I'm like, when I say this, Mark is definitely jumping in and going to be like, what do you mean, no police force? Because couldn't state police come in? Like that's where I thought you would go. So once well, again, no, that's what I meant too. Uh-huh. Uh, I will say the county sheriff is responsible for the area because they don't have their own police force, but he tries not to go out there very much apparently, but we'll get a little bit more into Deep's that. Deep's a hazard so, out in that piece. All right, go I ahead. mean, at best. So uh, it's a town that doesn't exist, basically, that exists because it's still a community. It's only about one square mile in area. It's about, just to, to situate it for everyone, it's about 50 miles north of the Mexican border and about 150 miles northwest of San Diego. The nearest incorporated town is three to four miles away. It's called Nyland. And that's where residents fill up on potable water. There's no potable water in Slab City. So people live there with no potable water. I mean, much less running water, no potable water. So they they have to get themselves to Nyland to get potable water and, and any scant supplies they might need. 
unsurprisingly, the actual size of the community fluctuates by season. It can be up to about 4,000 people in the winter and as low as 200 in the summer. And besides just these um, RVs and lean-tos and, and huts and tents, there is actually a makeshift library and a number of artworks. A lot of artists do live there, so there are a lot of large art installations. And there's an, even a music venue that someone put together. Any electricity that these people have is uh, via solar panels that the residents have rigged up. And one guy kind of rigged up and threw out a couple amps so people could come play music. So, um, But in this community, alcoholism, drug addiction, especially meth addiction, run rampant. In the same community, though, you have snowbirds spending their retirement living in their RVs who just wanted to live out their golden years away from the traditional society that they dedicated their working lives to. So it's this incredibly unique place with layers upon layers of interesting like interactions and crossroads between residents because you have so many different sorts of people. Um, which unsurprisingly comes with kerfuffles and worse between residents who have different thoughts on how to live. In one of the articles I read about at Slab City, the author says, justice often comes via a matchstick. And there are multiple examples of like people getting in fights and then somebody burns down somebody else's, you know, RV or car or whatever, like, because there's no law. I, if anyone not watching, Mark's just going, What? There is law. There is law. There is state law. There's federal law. Yeah, apparently it doesn't hold much sway out in the slabs. So so when things kind of take that turn, everything just burns back down to the slabs, which once again remain, which is why I went in this direction. Like oh my gosh, slabs, I've already like themselves. chomping at the bit for the big questions because I'm I'm full you of You know them. it's funny because I have one big question. And once again, I'm like, Mark is gonna, I'm just gonna ask the question and step back because Mark is gonna grab this like a <laughs> terrier with a bone and run with it. Okay. So there's okay. a book that came out in 2018 called Slab City Dispatches from the Last Free Place. And in an interview with the co-author, um, his name's Charlie Haley, he's an architect, and there was an interview in Smithsonian Magazine. He's quoted as saying, quote, ultimately the slabs themselves are the autonomous infrastructure that gave it its name. We were fascinated with the idea of concrete on sand. Concrete is permanent in terms of architecture, and yet the slabs float on the sand. They really are invitations for settlement. They provide a floor and give some stability to an incredibly transient place. And I was really struck with that imagery and how well he said that, that what once formed the solid foundation of a military base in the middle of nowhere has been repurposed to form the literal foundation of a community, but a community that is completely off the grid. So solid, concrete, you know, rock hard foundation for a community that's anything but. Um, and it's one of the very few places, very, very few places to exist like this in the world. And there's something about the idea that, um, well, I guess I really said that, let me not repeat myself, but there's this adaptive reuse thing. I love anything having to do with adaptive reuse. So we raised a concrete military base. We're gonna you know, build this, this very kind of artistic, anarchistic society. Um, the photographer who worked on the book as well, his name is Donovan Wiley. And he says, the slabs invite you to make a place. And I just love that once again, something solid calling people back that's man-made. So there's this counterintuitive pull. Um, you know, one side note, temperatures in the Sonoran Desert in the summertime get well over 100 degrees every day. It's, it's inhospitable. Um, 
And yet the slabs welcome you. Uh, they welcome those who they don't feel that they fit in well with traditional society. They're looking for an escape. They're on the run. Um, they're antisocial, they're misanthropic. Um, so it's a really interesting place. Now that entire way of life though is coming under fire, I guess maybe unsurprisingly, although it's been there since the sixties. Uh, California is actually, and has been for the past, I'd say at least seven years, <clears throat> excuse me, nothing has happened yet with it that I could find. So it's interesting, but California is assessing the land for potential sale. And so this is very distressing prospect to this um, community that's been living out there, you know, paying no taxes, uh, living off the land, being able to kind of step away from what they consider just a corrupt society or the rat race of society. And so the potential buyers would either be a developer, although that's a long shot because it is so far out, it's out near the Salton Sea. I mean, it is just out in the desert or utility company. And that would mean the end of Slab City. So one resident, I think maybe in concert with a few others, had suggested that they should create a charity and there should be a board. And that charity should buy Slab City because that way at least they own it. You know, the fear of strangers from the regular world coming in and imposing laws, imposing taxes and all those things won't happen. But a lot of um, the more transient residents hate that idea. They feel like it's a land grab by the residents who maybe have, you know, uh, have more means. Um, the residents doing it say, look, wouldn't you rather have us put in like the bare minimum of like structure than have a stranger come in and take it away? And it, it has just caused this huge rift in Slab City. Um, plenty of disharmony. But like I said, not resolved yet. So I don't know what the future is of Slab City. And if you're interested to see it, you might want to do it in the next few years before it might potentially be gone. There's part of me that is so moved by these folks, um, but there's also so much pain and trauma in so many of their stories. Heavy alcohol and drug addictions, as I mentioned, um, a number of veterans with PTSD live out there, a number of people who've just had horrible trauma in their lives, and that's what they're kind of fleeing from. And there's a documentary film called Welcome to Slab City, and I will post that in the show notes and on the website. And I do recommend it. I've never seen anything quite like it. And it will do what I'm unable to do on this podcast, which is give you just a really good sense of how unusual the residents of this place are, how unusual their way of life is, and really see for me, I've never seen anything like it. And at times it's moving and at times it's really disturbing. Um, there's also a lot of mental illness um, in the community and, and certainly you know, there are no medical facilities out there. At times it's comical, uh, but overall it is kind of inspiring that people are doing something that's just so different from anything we've seen. I pulled this from a summary of the movie on IMDb. Uh, the ensemble cast of slabbers are mostly damaged refugees from civil society or the elderly, eking out an existence on minimal pensions or social security struggling to retain shreds of dignity and independence. Most would otherwise be living in doorways, parks, under bridges and overpasses, subject to arrest and possessions at risk of confiscation. And so it just reminds you that there are people who are so displaced in this world that having a place like this um, is the last bastion for them, you know, except for sleeping under a bridge. So this kind of seeing this, the film itself after reading many articles about it and then reading this little summary, 
um, combined with when you see the pictures, you'll understand the geographical landscape, which is incredibly stark out in the desert, really brought to mind for me, John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, which I read recently, unrelated to this. I just a few months ago thought I, I have not read a lot of Steinbeck. Mark, you and I read East of Eden together many years right, ago right. now, but I decided really that the fact that I hadn't read Grapes of Wrath needed to be uh, remedied. So I did read it recently. I do highly, highly, highly recommend it. Um, anyway, it kind of brought that to mind. So many of those folks who were fleeing the Dust Bowl, which is kind of the setting for Grapes of Wrath. So fleeing the Dust Bowl during the Great Depression came through the same landscape, came through this desert as they moved to California to try to find work um, as labor. Um, they were looking for work and they were looking for a new place to call home, but they hit hurdle after hurdle of doing it. There, there weren't jobs, um, enough jobs when they got to California. No one in California wanted them. That, that's the term Okies. So people from Oklahoma coming, it was a, it was a derogatory slang term um, and they had nothing. And the Jode family is our protagonist family in the book. And they end up multiple times in different places along the way in migrant camps, what were called migrant, like migrant labor camps where, you know, you can go in, but they're, you know, labor, like union busters are coming in and beating up the folks. Towns people are coming in and beating up the folks because they don't want them settling in their area. There aren't enough services, just really horrible. So as they hit hurdle after her hurdle, eventually our protag our main protagonist, Tom Jode, who's the eldest son, starts to think, that maybe we should be building these communities, like these migrant camps exist, but maybe they should be building communities to all work together and support each other. And that's sort of what's happening here for the displaced in Slab City. So I mentioned some kerfuffles and I mentioned all these issues, but it's also people supporting each other because people have next to nothing. So if their neighbor needs something, they get it for them or they share what they have. And between that and, and the geography, I just thought it, it really just tied back to what was ha happening in the Great Depression way back then. Um, so that is all I have. I just wanted to share about this place I learned about that I never heard of. I don't think I ever would have heard of if we hadn't gotten the noun slab. So I'm very grateful for that. And um, when we come to the big question, maybe we'll talk about the bigger themes of what of having a place like this in the United States really means. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm excited like to hear the excitement in your voice because it, it did, as you were talking, this felt like such a perfect Thing that would resonate with you on so many levels, both good and bad. Uh, yeah, and I feel like our our big experiment here with the the reason behind this podcast still seems to be playing out in a good way, right? Any random word noun that we're given, do we find a connection? Do we find some hook into it? And gosh, this seems like a yeah, such a perfect example for you, Allison. That's great. Excellent. Okay. I'm done. So I really need you to get into it, but I'd like you to say your quick hit again before you. Yes, no, that's perfect. We're, we're absolutely okay. on the same, on the same wavelength because I figured I, I would do that to, to ground us. Um, it, yeah, it's a good setup for a couple of reasons that we'll get to. So my, just the hit again is slab is the slap at the foot by the boom. It really does sound like... Is it like, like an 80s hip-hop song? Sort of like, exactly. Or is hip-hop like, song yeah. or like... Um, uh, Lin-Manuel, sort of beat poetry Miranda. or something. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. like musical. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, but you'll you'll see quickly where it's going. And uh, hopefully, uh, audience and Allison, you you find this interesting. It's It, it took me by surprise when I was looking up Slab. And... Um, yeah, it it taught me something that I I realized I knew very very little about. So, 
starting my rabbit hole. Um, etymology quickly, and this will uh, immediately sort of tip off where I'm going. Etymology slab um, back from 1882 has one of its first recorded uses slab as any slack part of a sail hanging down. And so if you go back farther, a Dutch term slaplin or German schlappeleine is a, uh, a slab line. And it becomes clear that slap does in fact mean slack, both in Dutch and the schlap in German becomes um, uh, slack. In fact, I believe related schleppline instead of schlappeleine. Did you just say in fact? I think you said in fact. Did I say in fact? In, in fact, Continue. in fact. Oh my gosh, brilliant. <laughs> Maybe I am having a stroke. We talked about. Um, so in uh, in German, Schleppline is uh, a leash, which is seems similar a slack thing used to yeah, kind of you know keep a dog near you. Uh, anyway, so I'm going the route of sailing and some sailing terms um, and and orientation and and realizing that I knew very little about sails. Um, so. First, let's kick off with a little bit of trivia, as I usually like to do. Uh, so, Allison uh, and audience, please play along, see how you do. Trivia number one. The expression, three sheets to the wind, is derived from A, sheets of rain in a storm at sea, B, I sails. already know it's, oh, it's sails. Uh, sails left to blow in the wind. <laughs> yes. C, Loose, untethered ropes. D, bed sheets, blown off clotheslines. I mean, I, I wish think. it was D because that's hilarious, but it's definitely sailing because I think I learned this somehow way, way, way many decades ago <laughs> that it's like unmoored, I don't know if that's the right term, but sails that are flapping because sails are also called sheets, right? Got it. I'm going to say no, but I'll, we're going to explain <gasps> why that is. It is C, loose, untethered ropes. I was so confident. You are so okay. close. No, no, no. But because, and that but this part of the reason why I, I, it's written that way, and and even later on, I explain when, we're, when we get into some sailing terminology, the, the, the ropes, any rope on a ship is called a line, and the lines used in sailing are actually called sheets. Oh. Which is so confusing, right? Because I think we picture obviously sheets and sails. This is great, Where though. I've been I've been thinking about it wrong for decades. So now <laughs> I I now I understand it. And it's so bit. bizarre, yeah, that, that that they would call the actual part of the rigging that is the the ropes and the lines that would be called sheets, which is very unintuitive. Um, okay, so let me let me jump in a little bit. Some super brief history. The earliest evidence of boats using cloth sails is from Egyptian art depictions that are from circa 3300 BCE. So way back, of course. And based on some of the, the history I read in, in Britannica, you know, it's not hard to imagine that obviously the first, the very first examples would have been animal skins pulled taut um, to propel rafts or other simple nautical vessels to catch the wind, et cetera, et cetera. But keep in mind that catch the wind, because we're going to come back to that. There were, there were multiple levels of things that I realized I really didn't understand about sailing. Um, okay. So what is slab again? Since slab refers to slack in a sail, it kind of led me to thinking, well, how is a sail used and, and how does it maneuver on a ship? Uh, 
And so the, the term used for a configuration of sales on a ship is called the sail plan. So if you were to, to set out from scratch planning how to build a ship, you would basically be drawing up a sail plan. I mean, as long as this is a ship that's being run you know, with sails by the wind power and not something that is motorized and, and modern. Um, so that plan can also be called rigging, like the sail plan and the way that the rigging is designed on a, on a sailboat is, is all sort of related. So one thing that I tried to do, audience and Allison in this is, obviously that is a very esoteric, people spend their lives perfecting like sailing and, and the, the whole history of nautical you know life and, and so on. So I wanted to try to find some way to, to, to pin it down into what we could achieve together in the next, you know, 15, 20 minutes. Um, so we'll see how I do with that. But, um, it got me thinking about, um, how little I know right about this. And so I, I looked through this and on one site, for example, I found that it claims that there are 250 or so terms that are sp specific just to sailing, right? So a rich level of terminology. And if you remember from my, my, just the hits, those are using some terms. And it's easy to suddenly feel really at swim and disoriented thinking that you're just speaking gibberish, thinking that you're like, like we talked about, it's some weird song or a beat poem or, or something. So on that, on that theme, I'm I'm calling it our learning goal for the next 15 minutes. Um, minus the three I've been talking. Uh, in fact, uh, here is a, a fun sentence that I ran across on Wikipedia that I literally laughed out loud earlier uh, when I, you know, was was researching this. So I'm just going to read it, and then we're gonna we're gonna pick it apart together. Let's see if if you are at as at swim as I was. Slab or jiffy reefing allows for the quick establishment of a new tack and clue, while the halyard is partially lowered and then raised. One or two reefing lines passing through the sail's luff and leech reef cringles create a new tack and clue for the sail by pulling those points tight to the boom. What? I just I mean, remember Reef Kringles is just reef. my favorite. <laughs> right. So I'm reading this like, whoa. I mean, that was what I felt daunted in my research going, maybe this is not the direction I want to go because where, like, what do I even start with here? So the more I looked into it, that is our goal. And the next, you know, bit, I'm going to get us familiar with what the hell that line means. And also in doing so, hopefully orient you to, if you're ever on a sailboat, you'll have sort of a basic idea of what is around you, just in very broad terms. It's obviously, it could go into massive amounts of detail, um, but just broadly, what what if, if you heard some of these terms, you would be totally lost. So I'm, I called this section to visualize this with me, right? Sorry, audience, given our format, right? Most of you are listening, some of you are watching, but I'm not using you know visual cues. I don't have a, a whiteboard behind me. So we're going to try to visualize this together. And so Allison, I'm going to task you with, anytime you're okay. lost in the visual, absolutely okay. stop me and be like, where am I doing? What am I doing? Where are we standing? So if you're standing on a boat facing towards the front of the vessel, right? You're on a sailboat. Where you're standing, I think we all know this, we're starting easy, you're standing on the deck. Or perhaps you're in the cockpit, which is where you're sort of down near the steering um, and, and where you can maybe go into the cabin and th that kind of thing. So you're, you're probably on the deck, right? Or the cockpit. And that whole section is on the top of what's called the hull. Probably also easy. We, we kind of all know what a hull is more, more or less, right? The hull is the main part of the ship that rests in the water. 
Now, below the hull is a fin that extends down into the water and is called the keel. Now, again, you may or may not know that. Um, it starts to talk about, you know, terms that have come popular, even keel, things like that. Uh, but the keel. Now, a way to remember that, another term is keel hauling. You may have heard of that term in the past. Keel hauling was a punishment done for uh, for sailors, and not really a punishment, kind of like a death sentence, really. It is when a sailor was punished and a line would be attached to the sailor who was then thrown overboard and then dragged underneath the ship, either across the ship or lengthwise along the ship against the keel. And why this was considered mostly a death sentence is that generally barnacles and, and other marine life that are hard, uh, you know, largely are there under the keel. So given either the water being banged against the keel or how rough the barnacles and things could be to literally tear the flesh, keel hauling is a, is a very dangerous and, and usually either completely like maiming you for life or, or killing you kind of a thing. Um, that is just horrible. I, I'm just reminded in tongue when I said, Here's a little known contraption called the skull bridle. You just did it to me, and it's I you. want to apologize for having done that to you in the <laughs> I past. I know I should warn everybody. Like is now in my brain. <laughs> so you may have heard quartered and keel hauled and those types of things. There are all these, uh, you know, fairly horrible um, expressions I, that, that comes to mind because I believe I had a, a science teacher in middle school who would use like tarred, quartered and keel haul you or that kind of thing as as a joke, obviously. But that's where I first learned keel hauling. Anyway. So. Um, okay, so we are standing on the deck. And if you're standing on the deck on a on a, any ship, really, but um, particularly a sailboat, you're probably standing near one or more of the masts. Again, I think we all are familiar with what a mast is, the tall post to which sails are attached. Here's where maybe it'll start to get a little trickier. Um, the rope on the ship is called line. We talked about that earlier. And because of the, the first trivia question that I talked about with Allison, this next part we know, right? Confusingly, lines... To control the sails are called sheets, not the sails themselves. So let's picture we're on a classic sailboat that we've seen a million times in paintings. Uh, that is most likely what's called a Bermuda sloop. A sloop refers to the sail plan that we talked about. How are the sails configured? Um, other sail plans other than a sloop could be a cutter or a schooner. Um, and that all depends on the number of masts you have and the way that the sails are configured or the rigging type. I'm not going to go into all of that, but if anybody's curious, you can find pretty easily online. If you look up a sail plan and rigging type types, you would see um, a lot of visuals around what makes somebody, what's makes something a schooner versus a cutter. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, in some ways it's pretty fascinating, especially given how important it was to human history of, you know, mm -hmm. sailing and seafaring in general. So on our little classic Bermuda sloop, right? The one that we can picture having one big triangle as the main sail, and then the smaller triangle sail in front of it is the jib. So I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna pause and make sure you're keeping me honest, Allison. You can kind of picture, right? You're standing on this. So far, I'm Good. okay. So and there's far. the mast, and you're in the classic like two triangle sloop. Okay. Good deal. So then let's focus on the parts of this large triangle, which is the main sail. So being a triangle, obviously, we know that it has three points and three sides, or two legs and a hypotenuse, the long side, if we want to pull out some, some geometry terms, right? So the leg that, that runs up vertically along the mast is considered the fore or the front, right, part of the sail. And that is called the luff, L-U-F-F. -F. 
Don't ask me why. I could have looked that up, but I'm trying to just get us. What I'm doing is moving us towards understanding that crazy paragraph, right? And Luff was in there. So now you know if you're standing there next to the mast, the long leg of the big sail is in the front of that. Along the mast is the Luff. The other side, the hypotenuse, the back part of that long triangular sail is called the leech. So you have leech and luff. We've just learned two sailing terms. And if you're anything like me, you've never heard them before. Um, yeah. And I don't think they're going to stick for me, but hopefully they'll <laughs> stick for the next 10 minutes while you're but, but But if you're ever on a sailboat, what I'm hoping if somebody says luff and leech, you're going to be like, wait, I think I remember that was something to do with sails and fore and aft. And hmm. so. Uh, so again, the hypotenuse is the leech. So then the bottom leg, right? What's running along the bottom of the triangle is aptly named the foot. Okay. So let me pop into another quick trivia question just to break oh it up boy. a little bit. I won't be overly <laughs> confident this time. No, it's all good. You taught me. Uh, on average, how fast do sailboats move and this would be a cruising sailboat not like a racing sailboat sort of an average cruising sailboat is it a about five to seven miles per hour is it b about 12 to 15 c 32 to 37 or d 55 to 60 miles per hour i honestly have no idea i'm gonna go with i'm gonna go with 12 to 15 okay it is five to seven and I would have gone oh, okay. 12 to 15 too. I would have thought like, yeah. Um, when you're getting up to like 15 to 17, uh, I believe that's more like a racing um, a racing sailboat. So it's possible, but like your average cruising is going five to seven. So one thing that I learned as I was researching this is, yeah, you it's slower than you would think when you're thinking of sailing. I think people think that the wind gets going and you're like, you're like flying along there. Um, no, it, it's, it's by and large a, a, a sort of a slower, um, slower sport, slower, slower deal. Okay. So back to our visualization here, we're standing on the deck facing forward in the ship and this tall mast is there with this massive mainsail, right? So if you're anything like me, I worry about what could happen on a ship. And when I, I literally, when I was picturing this myself, I thought, okay, this always happens in the movie. There's this big bar that swings somewhere and somebody gets knocked out or knocked into the ocean or something happens or like the, you know, the hero uses it to take over the ship or something, fight the bad guys. So that, that long beam that comes swooping in from somewhere uh, is called the boom. And that runs along the. Sorry, the it's funny because it hits people. Right. Exactly. Over and it's, called the boom. it's like, boom, you're in the water. Uh, that's really funny. I almost was going to, no joke, Allison, of course, we're like <laughs> friends forever and, and think the same way. Uh, I was going to say, yeah, I'd like to think that I'm sure that's not it, but you never know. Um, exactly. Like that, yeah. that's how it was named. Yeah. Totally. Like Boomstick. Okay, uh, so again, no, no, gosh, please. <laughs> so that boom, right. Is uh, it's again, it's the, the pole that's running along the bottom of what we just learned as the foot of the sail. Uh, horizontally parallel to the water, if anybody's not picturing this, right? So the thing that we often see swinging around, right? Knocking people off the ship <laughs> in movies. Uh, and so the two ends of the boom are important. If you're picturing that thing swinging and almost missing you and you're like, all right. Um, remember that we can refer now to the ends of the boom as either the aft side, the farthest from the mast towards the back of the ship, or the fore side towards the front of the ship. And that again is the leech moving back or the luff 
So that that boom that's swinging out and potentially hitting you, where it's swinging against the mast is going to be the luff. And where the, the piece that's really swinging out to almost hit you is probably the leech side, right? Okay. So again, we're, we're, we're so close to, to understanding our full paragraph, believe it or not. And we'll, we'll go back and we'll say it in a, in a few and see if, if we can follow it. So those two parts, right, of, of the boom, where that sail is coming down along the foot of the sail, right, where it is attached to this boom, those two sides, either the back, the leech, or the front, the luff, are called special things. So where that sail meets the boom at the front, the luff, is called the tack. And that becomes a very important term, tack. And where the sail meets the back part of the boom, right, or the leech part, as we've been calling it, is called the clue, C-L-E-W, clue and tack. So you'll hear sometimes when sometimes like I'm out sailing. I've never been sailing in my life, but you'll, you'll, you'll hear the terms. And in my research, I came across it. Didn't you grow up on a lake? Yes. But I no no, I was the kid who was like, gross. I don't want to, I don't want to feel fish. I don't want to feel slimy rocks. I don't want to feel any, none of this surprises me. Right. Exactly. It shouldn't. I was in the pool. Thank you very much. I was in the pool all the time. I think I learned to swim technically in the lake when I was very young, but anyway. Sorry, audience. I, I digress. Uh, not the type to be in like fresh water or anything. <laughs> um, yes, I know. Allison's just shocked beyond words. Uh, anyway, so tack and clue uh, are, are those areas. So when you're adjusting the sail, and we'll talk about that in a second, uh, you're basically creating a new tack and clue is what it's called. So when you're manipulating the sail in the various many complicated ways that you can, uh, the tack and the clue become um, important parts of, of helping to main, um, control or adjust your main sail. All right. So we only need two more terms, believe it or not, to understand that crazy what was gobbledygook, I think, to you and me, certainly when I read it. Uh, so when you're moving... Um, so picture again, movies and someone says like hoist the sails or run up the sails, right? This classic thing. And we usually see some big sailor pulling uh, a rope and the sails are, are flying up. Now that's a little misleading that visual I just gave you, because that's probably not a sailboat, right? We're picturing the old school pirate films or something like that. Those are called ships that have full rigging. And they're right, the massive things that have multiple sails, you know, if you're thinking about, I don't know, Pirates of the Caribbean or something, those are not sailing ships. And there's a very different rigging that they use. I'm not going to get into that today, uh, but um, there were advancements in rigging type that actually made sails much more flexible and complicated to maneuver and actually helped um, uh, the Arab people way back when actually have, I, I believe, a... a advantage in in like naval warfare because they invented a way of rigging ships that wasn't as rigid as say those big ships anyway um so yes let me go back and say that i think we're so close let's see let's see yes so if somebody's hoisting up a sail if you're pulling up to extend your sail so you're you're just going out for the first time in your sailboat and the sail isn't up yet uh, once things are set up, you're pulling on a line, or as we've learned, a sheet that is pulling up the sail towards the head of the top of the mast. Um, and that is called a halyard, H-A-L, 
Y-A-R-D, H-A-L-Y-A-R-D. What is called the halyard, the top? The halyard is the particular line or sheet oh, the rope okay. being okay. used to pull up the sail. Okay. So that runs along the mast up to the top of the mast. And so when you pull it, it's, it's extending the sail up along the mast to the top. Uh, so that's the halyard. Uh, and so the very last term are, if you picture along the edges of sails, this um, I'm, I'm, there's definitely something else that it's used in, but maybe you'll think of it, Allison. But if you're picturing along the edge of the sails, um, along the leech and the luff edges, if you're picturing what that is now, uh, there are these holes right in the sail that are reinforced with metal rings so they don't tear the sail. And through those holes, these lines, these sheets, uh, the rope will run. So those holes are called cringles. Don't ask me why I didn't look up the etymology. On that, I would have called me. them grommets, but I like Pringles right. a Kringles. lot better. Now, I, this is such a random, sorry, audience, total like non sequitur. But I started to think, wait a minute, could Chris Kringle mean that Santa was a sailor at some point in the folklore? So I went down that side rabbit hole for a little bit. And no, sadly, Chris Kringle is apparently an anglicized version of the German for Christ child or Christkindle. And so Christ, Christkindle became Chris Kringle and Kringle. I, 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 could, I could feel the disappointment roll. Yes, I was so like, boo. Anyway, but I, I did write here. If anybody wants to help me write a book about Santa's days as a strapping sailor on the North Atlantic Sea, I'm down. Excellent. Reach out to me. We'll write that quote unquote book. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so... <laughs> Anyway, anyway, I literally have anyway in my notes, everybody. It's like I knew I would be this. I'm just biting my tongue because anything I can say is going to be inappropriate. So continue. Get us, bring us Get us through. I know you're like, please, Mark, we're done. Uh, All right. So we have everything we need for our learning goal. So I'm going to read it slowly and I'll explain. And it's totally fine, Allison, if you're like, wait, still confused because I've spent, you know, hours researching this. So. Slab or jiffy reefing, we'll talk about reefing, but this is describing what reefing is, right? So slab or jiffy reefing allows for the quick establishment of a new tack and clue. So let me stop. Establishing a new tack and clue. Can you picture what that is? The tack, okay, these were actually the two that I had the hardest time. I should have stopped you because now I feel, so that's like when you have the boom, Yep. the tack and the clue are, either end of it? Yes, exactly. Okay. And, and so, so the clue, is it the clue or the tack? That's the one that's going to hit you in the head. Uh, the clue. The clue and the tack is closer to the mass. Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Okay, okay. No, that's great. You remember that. That's excellent. And so establishing a new one means establishing where the sail is, how high it is up the mast, because you can bring, so reefing is reducing how much sail you have in the wind. And so if you can picture, you're then bringing the sail lower. And so right. bringing it lower means that you are kind of like unhooking it. Like you're, you're, you're loosening the halyard, the, what we have that's pulled it up taut to the top. You're loosening it so that the sail comes down. And then you are basically refastening it at a different position on the tack and the clue. So when they say establish a new tack and clue, it means you're lowering okay. the sail and then refastening it. And in doing that, you have this new slack, right? Because you've brought like a a portion of the sail down that's now just hanging. And that's actually what the slab is, that that slackness 
that you've added by adjusting is the slab. <laughs> I think this is fascinating. Like totally like is giving me a, a new orientation to sailing that I I've never had, but I, yeah, keep me honest, Allison, if you're, I don't think you're lost at all because you just remember those two terms. Not right? yet, but I'm like cool, holding cool. my breath. Like No, no, no. But now we're like just going to work test. through the rest. So I'm going to reread that and then we're going to add the next part. Slab or Jiffy reefing allows for a quick establishment of a new tack and clue. And this is the new part. While the halyard is partially lowered and then raised up again. Okay. So the halyard, which is the rope that brings yep. it to the top, you're lowering it. And so then raising can, it again. Yes, exactly. So that you get the slab so that you, I assuming Yay. you can catch more That's it. wind to, okay. Yep, <gasps> yep. Uh, okay. And then one or two reefing lines passing, th- this is a little tricky. One or two reefing lines passing through the sails, luff and leech, reef cringles. Okay, right, so. Yeah. No, I no, you don't oh, have you to. It. So the yeah. luff and the leech are the back and the front of the thingy of yep, the, the sail. sail. Yep. And the cringles are the holes and the line, the reefing lines, I, I assume are the lines that run through them, but I don't know if reefing is a specific type of line. No, the, I don't know that either. I'm assuming the it must be certain ones that are used to I think it's be the same ones like the halyard and, and other ones that or use this to maneuver it, or whatever to bring okay. it down. Yep, yep. Totally. And then the very, the very last line is, um, uh, one or two reefing lines passing through the sails, luff and leech reef crinkles, create a new tack and clue for the sail by pulling those points tight to the boom. You're pulling the, the so you're pulling, like now that it's lower, you're pulling those closer to the boom. Yep. You're just securing it. I can't believe, I feel like you're teaching me a new language. This is incredible. No, no, I'm, I'm so glad it's working because I got excited too. I didn't think it'd be possible to read that when I did on, on Wikipedia and go, I have no idea what that means. But with just a little foundation in what sale uh, anatomy is really, uh, you can suddenly understand something that, you know, was complete gibberish like an hour ago for me, which I love. Which I think is also like you said about mine that it kind of sounds like we're our original hypothesis with this podcast is you take a, you know, what could be just a really everyday humdrum noun and learn like incredible new things. Like I learned about Slab City, which I'd never heard of. And here you are learning all about sailing and like the language <laughs> yeah. of sailing. So I love it. I like, I think both of our things kind of just reinforced that this week. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is a little bit of a bonus thing. Um, yeah, uh, because that's a lot of very specific sale terminology. I was sitting there also being like, is there some way just to help anybody out for like basic nautical terms that I know we all have heard, but we sometimes forget which is which. And I found some mnemonic devices that may help. So if we're back there standing now, I can be like, we're standing next to the main sail by the mass. We're making sure that the clue end of the boom doesn't knock us out. Um, uh, I want us to to picture that you are facing the front of the ship, which is the bow, and the stern is behind you. Now, in case you need a mnemonic for remembering, it's a bunch of BS. That's how you can remember it. <laughs> nice. Just that was funny. I love that. Um, if you need to remember bow versus stern, you focus. This is what I just read. Um, you focus on remembering where the bow is, and then you can always remember the stern is the other the other side. The bow. If you think of when a human bows, they bend forward. 
So just realize, okay, it's always going to be the forward part of the ship. Another flavor mnemonic is another option is to think that if you picture looking down on a ship, the shape of the bow is the shape of a bow using a bow and arrow. Um, so that's another one. I kind of like just you when you bow, you're moving forward. So it's the forward part of the ship. And then the last bit is, and I thought this was pretty cool, uh, port and starboard. Uh, I think a lot of people like confuse those. I know I always do. Every anytime I'm on a boat, I never can remember which is which. But now I believe I will remember. So you can. There's two mnemonics. One is a simple one. One is the actual like why they're called what they're called. So the simple one is you can think of running out of port wine and you would say, oh, we've run out. There's no port left. I like that one. That is not mine. Obviously, oh. I didn't come up with that. So if you say there's no port left, wah, then you're always going to remember. They're always going to okay. be like port is left. And that's kind of brilliant, right? And then of course, starboard becomes right. If you're interested though, on um, briefly why they're actually called what they are, Starboard, the star, is not actually a star that we think of in the sky. It's actually uh, an evolution of Old English for steer, S-T-E-O-R. And this actually means steering. So star became from steering. And so steering board was something that was on ships. And it was um, an alternative to like a, a, a tiller or a rudder that was on the ship. And because most uh, sailors, like like most humans, are are right-handed. It just happened to be put on the right side of the ship on the deck, uh -huh. and so you had something on the right side. The steering board was became starboard was the steering part, and it was on the right side. The other thing to remember is that because it became convention to dock the ship in a port where the steering board was facing out to sea you would always have, therefore, the left side of the ship would be facing the port that you were docked at. So that's just another way to kind of think of it. It's much more involved, right? But you could be like, oh, the steering board was put on the right because it was easier for, for sailors to use based on being right-handed. And the way that they always chose to, to dock was to put, therefore, the actual port off to the other side of the steering board. I definitely think there's no port left is... Easier. Right. That one's so much easier. Just like, oh, there's no port. It made me think of, um, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean. It's not port, but like, why is the rum gone? That whole line. Uh, yeah, that's it. That's all I have. Where I left off, I, I sometimes like to mention this, is um, the physics of sailing. And so very, I'm not going to get into it, but what I would like to go read more about is my misunderstanding. I thought sails were completely based on catching the wind, right? When you picture the, a sail billowing out and catching the wind, it feels very intuitive, at least to me, that it's working um, by just pushing the boat based on the wind. Uh, however, a sail, what I was reading, a sail actually works like a foil, an airfoil, much like the wing of a plane. Now, although the wing of a plane causes lift up into the air, the way that the bow, the that, that billowing of the sail is working is it's actually in where you maneuver it the wind is moving more along the outside of the curve of the sail than the flat part of the boom for example and that's propelling it forward so that's why you don't have to always have the wind behind you with a sailboat 
you can have it coming in from a from a from the side. Oops, I just hit my mic from the side and still have force propelling you forward. Now, I'm not going to get into all of that, obviously, because I I didn't learn that, but I just sort of was dumbfounded with having no idea that that is part of the physics of sailboats. It's not because I always wondered what happens if you just don't have the wind at your back with how are you? Right. Yeah. Well, you tack, but that like I literally don't know what that means. Except yes, I vaguely no, understand that you cross the. You, I love why yeah. you call that. So the tack, there's two things. And sorry, now I'm taking a little longer. The tack is what we talked about, the point on the boom um, where the sail meets uh, the mast in the front. But the tack is also uh, considered where the wind is coming from. So you have the the tack uh, is the direction where the wind is, and tacking is also yeah to your point where you can turn particularly the bow of the ship crosses the wind line. It goes into the wind is a particular jibing or jibbing, but I think it's jibing is where you do the same, but with the stern, you maneuver in a way that the stern actually wow. turns through the wind line. Um, can't pretend that I know what I'm talking about yet, of course, but um, yeah. So that, I love that Allison, that you remember that term um, because yeah, it was fascinating to go into the wind yeah, you have to move in sort of zigzag and keep tacking to your point, crossing the wind line so that you can advance into the wind, which I think is got to be complicated. <laughs> anyway, so that's. Uh, I yeah. honestly, I want to applaud you like for taking something that needed to be so visually based to understand. You did a fantastic job. That was <laughs> terrific. Thank you. All right. Well, should we jump into our big questions? Let's because do it. They're going to be very different. So like I said, I only had one in the interest of time, but I know Mark's just going to take off on this. So my question after we talked about Slab City and how unique it is in terms of its freedoms is, should we be celebrating that a place like this exists in the world, a place where people who have been displaced due to you know a myriad of reasons, uh, possibly because of addiction and that there are not services for them yeah, yeah. Uh, to help them through that mental illness is a huge one that I mentioned briefly um, where they people can't get the services they need. So they don't fit into traditional society. Um, you know, the homeless, should we be celebrating that there's this place where these people can, if they can get there, can go and live in a, in a somewhat, um, I was going to say harmonious. It definitely is the wrong word, although it is very harmonious there sometimes, but in a place where they can live on their own terms, where they have neighbors, they help each other out, even though all of them have next to nothing um, and they regulate their own community. Should we be celebrating that or should we be trying to regulate it in line with everything else in our country? And in fact, the vast majority of the world, we all know the reasons for regulating, um, for government regulations and, and taxation. You go back to Freud and civilization and its discontents. You can go back to a lot of things, but we understand that they're philosophically, they're there for the greater good mm. of people in general. Uh, I don't know that it always works out that way. So should we be celebrating it or should we be regulating it? And if your answer is we should be regulating it, my question would be why, what benefits might that bring um, to these folks in that area who really just want to live this way. Take it away, Mark. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I wrote down, if you saw me, 
typing during. I your did see you. At it some was point, me like, just like yeah. capturing some some thoughts and questions, and they totally live right alongside everything you just asked, and I, I think play off of each other really well. Um, my, I do think it should be regulated, but I, I have a reason, and I do have a perspective on on if we should be celebrating it. I I don't think it should be celebrated at all. Um, I think what's tricky is, and what I sensed any, anyway, Allison, in, in your, your take on it. And I understand this is there is a resilience of the human spirit and what to do in reaction to something that's a problem that I think should be celebrated that, that type of, to your point, like, isn't it amazing that somebody's doing this, that type of resiliency, I think is admirable and touching but the root cause of why they need to take that action to begin with, I think is awful, right? Um, so like what I wrote here was, isn't Slab City an example of failure by society? You know, you called them refugees from society. And yeah, refugees are not by choice usually, right? Like if things were working for them, they wouldn't feel so burnt out and unsupported and unhappy with with what it is. And I'm not saying everybody, I think can make everybody happy, but like this, it wouldn't, you know. Right. And I will say, I, I think I hit on a couple of times. It's really, it's a, such a complex community because you do have so many different types of people. And again, I do urge you to watch the movie because you'll really see this, but yes, I hear what you're saying. Like society has failed a lot of these people yeah. um, in a lot of different ways, but there's certainly also residents of Slab City who say, no, I, this is how I want to live. I'm not here because I'm mentally ill. I'm not here. Like I, I'm an anarchist and I believe that this should happen. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Sure. There, there are those people. Yeah. But even, even to a degree, and this is almost a question that I'm not solidly have an opinion on this. Wouldn't you say that if society is catering to a wide swath of people, they shouldn't feel that hindered that they feel like this is where they need to go to, to feel free. I, because I, I wouldn't call it like in several of the things I think you either read or talked about, you said that they have this space where it's the only free place left. I don't feel like that's, it's, it's certainly free from regulation, but I, I don't know that I call that freedom because with that, aren't they bound to violence? They're bound to retribution from a neighbor that burns their house down if they don't agree with them. Like there's a level of, it just seems like a whole new set of. I mean, there is, but I think bound. most of the residents feel, again, you can't speak, they're not a monolith, so you can't speak for all of them. Right. One, but a lot of the residents also feel like they then have the freedom you're going to hate this to take matters into their own hand, just like their neighbor does. And they'd rather have that than a government or a police force telling them what to do. So, and that's how they're defining, defining that freedom. Right. Um, I mean, that that's a negative example. There are positive examples too. Like if I want to just walk around my backyard naked every day, all day, I can do that, you know, without right, being right. a local ordinance against it, something not violent. And I certainly don't mean to come off like, I don't know. I don't, I don't mean to like, seem too negative on it. I, I'm agreeing with what you're saying. I, I just feel like if I were to respond to somebody who felt that way, and I think this comes up in general, when you have people that are like, everybody should have guns because everybody then can use a gun against everybody else. It, we have these, regu in my opinion, we have these regulations so that the, 
you don't reduce humankind to which animal is stronger than another animal so that, you know what I mean? Like, right. If you are, I kept thinking of children and, and we didn't get into whether or not kids are born into this society there, yes, but if you are, they are, okay. So if you're born into that and you don't want to be there, what does society owe you? What does the rest of the, the nation owe you to get you out of there? If it's horrible treatment and you did it. Yeah. And also, it. no, it's I'm really glad you brought tricky. up kids. Cause there's no, there, there's no schooling. So any schooling that would have to be done would have to be homeschooling. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I also want to make clear because you're you're always so polite about this and you always say, I don't disagree, but but I, first of all, we it's okay for us to disagree. And second right, of all, right. I'm not saying I think it I'm not saying I think it's a utopia at all. I'm incredibly torn on it. I think it's fascinating yeah. uh, place and I think it's a fascinating question, but I I'm with you. You know, like so many of our structures in society exist, like you said, because otherwise. I mean, this was Freud positing this. I'm not a huge Freud fan. I mean, I guess I can say, yeah, he came up with some good things, but uh, in general, right. I'm not a huge Freud fan. But he even does, Darwin, you know, though, sort of more than Freud. Well, right. Like, yeah. yeah. But like Freud was like civilization is discontents. Like we went into civilization exactly. So what you're saying wouldn't happen. Right. right. We have to regulate. So it's not just this. Darwinian free-for-all, but then that makes us like at in our like id nature really unhappy because we're being regulated. So it all right. goes back yeah. to Darwin yeah. and Freud, I guess. Yeah. And uh and to the as per usual, I don't know that there's an answer, but I think it's really interesting to think about philosophically. No, that I totally agree with. It's uh yeah, it strikes right at the heart of the the, the individual versus society, you know, which yep. seems to govern uh, it's like the through line with everything about civics and, and life, <laughs> modern life. Ugh. All right. Well, having not solved that one. Right, exactly. Mine is obviously very, very different. I really love the completely, I, I kind of figured this might happen with something like Slab, that it's so open to where you want to go that we have wildly different um, things. So mine was, it's almost a confusion on why things happened the way they did. And, and so I'll, I'll, I don't know, let me just say it and we'll talk about it. Of course, wouldn't we think that the thousands of years of wind powered travel on the seas might've meant a slightly more wind based natural approach to power and even oh. land travel. Although I suppose technically air travel is the harnessing of the wind in its way, but of course it's become petroleum based and everything else and with engines. But the other thing is, or was it seen as a slow and antiquated means of transport once steam came about? So here I am right coming at it like, gosh, everything was so wind based. Wouldn't we as a society and a species maybe have, have had some momentum in our, on our reliance on wind that it would have carried into nowadays? Or was it, seen as old school and therefore thrown out the second we had something new. I love this question so <laughs> much because I don't know that I ever would have thought of it that way. And when you said it, I thought, yeah, why are we are so, uh, the majority in our world right now are so adverse to, or adverse to wind power, right? And there are a lot of reasons for that, obviously, well, I mean, do with money and power, but. Right, right. Wow, but right, so human beings like navigated the globe this way I, i'm gonna go with as as with most quote unquote and technological advances it wasn't easy right 
So, so it wouldn't have been easy. You had to learn how to navigate by the stars. You had to learn how to navigate through all sorts of wind conditions from no wind. I know there's a term for that. Did you come across was it the doldrums? If you're in the doldrums. Oh yeah. Around, around the equator. Um, so when there's no wind all the way to, if you get caught in like hurricane force winds and you're in a boat and that has to be pretty terrifying and you can't control it at all. And with steam power, you are somewhat under your own control. You can't control for rogue waves or that sort of thing. My biggest nightmare, but, um, but you can control farther. Away. So I do think it's probably, they thought, yeah, like you said, this is old school with steam power. We can go faster. And it's also more under our control. I don't have to wait for the wind to pick up my hot take no I, I yeah i can see that i i totally agree with that and and then if i'm bouncing back and forth between it i'm like but it was so instrumental mm-hmm. that wouldn't there be more of a respect for it now but yeah there's so many variables to your point we've been lobbied to death as a society by petroleum companies for for that to be you know the, the, the engine of of propulsion <laughs> so like you know or yeah I, I just think it's strange though because you think about the amount of time that that was ingrained in us and then it seems to be like we're rediscovering it in wind farms it almost right. feels like well no shit like we relied on wind for so long as a species anyway oh i, I kind of love our, our our questions this week or to your point interesting and things i wouldn't have considered right wouldn't have thought of all right well should we revisit our ratings i suppose let's do it i'm also just trying to pre pre bring up the word generator here so you were at a three and i was at a 7.5 so uh i i i dropped considerably i'm gonna drop right down to a three i'm gonna drop right down to where mark was now i loved learning about slab city and i loved the questions it brought up and um some of the photographs of this community too are, are, are really, really quite beautiful and striking. Uh, and we'll link some of those, but I didn't find a lot of meat there and I didn't find a lot of roads to go down. Another mm-hmm. uh, like uh, slab is also an acronym. You probably came across this mark for super large black hole. So I really, really, I did not really, I, not I really uh, almost went down that. And I thought it might be a little too close to orbit. So I didn't, but I, I didn't oh. find a lot of, of routes and I felt very hemmed in. Um, and again, I, I love learning about this. So no complaints, yeah. but I had like high hopes because I liked the way slab sounded. So I'm dropping down to a three and you started at a three. So where are you going? I'm going to go up to an eight. I feel like we've like what? almost just about flipped we flipped because um yeah a combination of having the etymological little easter egg surprise of like oh i wouldn't have pictured slab with slack and then that whole road into yeah into sailing and then being worried in my research that you know i was going to get a little bit into sailing and be like no this isn't either interesting enough or you know, the, the, the logistics of preparing it for our show here is like, oh, but it, it seemed to, f- to fall together. You know what I mean? And then having this like little learning goal of what is this crazy sentence that, uh, you know, paragraph really. Um, so yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. So, yeah. That's fantastic. I, I don't think we've done quite a flip like that before. So no, that's really so. interesting it's to cool. me. And it's funny that you brought up the super, super large 
black hole. What was it? Black hole. Yeah. So it must be S and then LA for large and then B black mm, hole, right? It's not it. exactly. But. Because yeah, you mentioned orbit. If, if anybody uh, remembers our, our first episode, I believe that's why our entire, is it our galaxy? Yes. Is in orbit around a super large black hole at the center of the Milky Way. So it really would have been a tie-in, but episode 11 might've been too soon to like tie it back <laughs> into the totally big questions of the universe. Um, okay. Are we ready for our new noun? Yeah, I love it. Let's do it. All right. Let me just bring this up here and make sure that we are set to nouns. Okay. We are here. We go. Ah. Oh, okay. The new word is writer. W-R-I-T-E-R. Huh. Okay. I mean, this is one of the more direct ones we've had, I'd say. Right. Interesting. All right. Oh, I like it. I mean, yeah. Again, talk about options. Uh, how are you feeling? I am. I'm sorry for anyone who's watching. I, my microphone cord just fell out. So I was trying to get it back in. So I was looking off to the side in a weird way. But you were fixed. super smooth. I was looking down and didn't even notice the. Oh, that's show. perfect. I was like, oh, and then I realized <laughs> I didn't know how long I'd been. So with writer, I mean, honestly, I feel like this one is so rich. It's almost too easy. Like, I almost feel like we should hit the button again. Right. Which we're not going to do. Right. That, right. The, right. right. Not huh. the rules. Sorry. <clears throat> <laughs> Homonyms for the whim. Um. So I'm going to go with, you know, I'm going to go with seven because I feel like there's probably so many amazing stories out there to tell and things to learn, but it also almost feels too easy. So I'm going to give it a seven. Okay. I'm going to give it an eight. Okay. Uh, largely just because I already kind of sense, yeah where I would probably go with it. But again, sometimes I'm very surprised with a different hook in the research that catches me. So great. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. Love it. I think with that, Allison, do you want to take us out? Absolutely. As always, thank you everyone so much for joining us for this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please do follow or subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. Uh, if you could leave us a good rating, it really does help other people find the show. Please do visit us as well on the web. You can visit our website at renownedpodcast.com or find us on social media at Instagram or Facebook. And we really would love any feedback you have to offer. So thank you again, and we will see you next time. Bye, everybody.